You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Hey, let's turn to First uh, John this morning. That's where we're going to be, the book of First John. We've been taking a journey through First John for the last several weeks, and this morning I want to talk about how Jesus came and he raised the standard. He raised the standard of love. He raised the standard of the commandments of God that God gave to Moses about what it meant to live rightly before the Lord. Jesus came and established the standard to a new height. I want to make that clear this morning through 1 John. And in fact, this morning is going to be a little different um, because just as I was working my way through this passage in 1 John, I really felt a faith to minister God's word to us this morning. You know, in the context of church family, there's preaching, there's teaching. There's also moments for the word of God to be ministered corporately, and that's gonna happen this morning, for sure. I just, there's so many parts of this passage that I feel like there's gonna be a grace for God to do something in your heart uh, as his word is spoken, so uh, get ready. Actually, let's just prepare our hearts for his word this morning. Can we do that? Lord, we prepare our hearts for your word. Not for a speech, not for a talk, but for your powerful, authoritative word, which is the revelation of Jesus. God, I pray that we would receive all that you have for us this morning. We don't want to learn about religion. We want to learn about a personal God who's revealed himself in the God-man Jesus. And we want it to have real implications for our life, not just for Sunday morning, but for Monday through Saturday, and I speak that upon us, upon each one of us, in your precious name, amen. So Jesus came and he raised the standard. I grew up in um, North Dakota, Minnesota, that area right on the border. Uh, went to high school on the Minnesota side, lived on the North Dakota side, and, um, and so that's lake country. That's the land of 10,000 lakes is Minnesota, and so I grew up fishing on the lakes, My dad raised me to to fish at a young age and just loved being on the water, loved the leisurely, relaxing nature of fishing. You got a bobber in the water and you're good, right? You can have all sorts of troubles going on, but uh, you're sitting there on the water with a bobber there, you're good. And my dad just raised me and I loved it and I still love that to this day. Uh, When I went into junior high though, I got the opportunity to go to uh, Guatemala, Central America, and uh, it was one of many trips that I began to take down there because of a friend that I made in junior high. And uh, his dad was an avid fisherman, my friend Luis. His dad was an avid fisherman. And um, I quickly realized that although it goes by the same name of fishing, fishing in Guatemala is quite different than fishing in Minnesota. And so uh, I quickly realized that as we ventured 20 miles out to the open sea for deep sea fishing. And so we're in Minnesota, fishing is like a very leisurely, relaxing outing. You're just going to be soaking in the rays, enjoying good conversation, chilling, catching a fish every once in a while. I realized this was something completely different. So go ahead and throw that picture up. This is, this is not my first blue marlin I caught, but this was one I caught on a different trip. I didn't have the OG, but this was, this was one from uh, my college years when I went, went down there. And uh, I quickly realized as you're fighting this monster of the sea for 20 minutes with blisters on your hands and, and sweating and 
in this, what feels like a fight <laughs> with this monster, that I'm in a different, different place. This is, this is still called fishing, but it's fishing of a different nature. It's fishing to a different level. You feel it the next day, it's sort of fishing. <clears throat> Quickly realize that. Like the standard had been raised. You can take the picture down. <laughs> some of you are doing the math on the date there. Some of you are admiring other funny quirks about that picture. But the point, the point of it is that the, ra- the standard was raised. There was a new standard of what fishing meant. And in a nutshell, that's what Jesus came to do. He, be, he, he came not to abolish what had been, but became to fulfill what had been and to personify and embody what had been. Therefore, the standard had been raised. And so I want us to see that this morning, and I want, I want us to see the implications of what that means for us. Because this is what actually begins to allow the, the gospel Everything hinges actually in the gospel on this, but it also is what makes the gospel then pierce into our hearts and have implications for our day-to-day life, Monday through Saturday, Monday through Sunday, Sunday include, included as well, but everyone understands Christianity in, in terms of Sunday, so. Um, this has been so beautiful going through First John. We've talked about the invitation that Jesus himself came as the word of life. We've talked about this imagery that John talks about of light and darkness. That was all in 1 John chapter one. 1 John chapter two, we talked about transformation being a necessary part of the gospel. He says, God's will for your life is that you do not continue to go on sinning in the same way. This is the beginning of 1 John chapter two. So here we are in verse seven, and we're gonna talk about the new standard of Jesus himself. Look at this, it says, beloved, I am writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. We'll stop right there for this morning. Jesus came and established both a new and an old commandment. John said it was both. He's not writing anything new because this was something that God enacted through what he revealed to Moses from the very beginning. But he said it's also new. It's an old commandment, but it's new. It's new because it came and fulfilled the old commandment and then also embodied and personified it so it raised it to a new level. That's why we're, we're calling it a new standard. It's been raised to a new standard. Like excuses are removed because now the standard of what it looks like to live in this perfection before a holy God was perf- personified in the person of Jesus. And then the, 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 the um, 
immeasurable extent of the love of God was then personified through the sacrificial life of Jesus giving himself for us. So we see that in John 13, and most all scholars agree that what John is referring to when he talks about this commandment, this new commandment, what he's referring to is what he said in the Gospel of John, John 13, where Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. So Jewish hearers would have heard that and heard an old commandment, Leviticus 18 or 19, where, where God told Israel, love, love your neighbor as yourself, that golden rule. That was not a new one. That was, a, that was an old commandment given to Moses. They would have heard Jesus say that. They say, oh yeah, we, we've heard that. But the kicker is the second part. Just as I have loved you. The standard now becomes he himself. The, the standard now becomes his personification, his embodiment of that sort of sacrificial sacrificial love and later in John 15 he says there's no greater love than this that a man should lay down his life for his friend so he was going to live out and very and, and through his very life demonstrate what that sort of love was through the giving of his very life in verse 35 then it said by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another so this is the new standard it's Jesus himself then the other side of that then is the calling of us to live to that new standard by the grace of God, empowered by the spirit of God. This is the new standard over our lives. And so you'll see that that's the, the new standard for us to then live by. We talked about it last time, it's God's will for us to be transformed by the grace of God. First uh, John chapter two, verse, verse one, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, so you won't continue to sin in the same ways. But we also know that because what he directly applies it to next is anger and hate that we harbor in our hearts towards our brother. That new standard was given and personified through the person of Jesus. And then he says, whoever says he is in the light but yet hates his brother is still in darkness. John, he loves calling this out. This whole um, Christianity by word only. We've already read like four or five examples of this. You can just go back in your Bible. You can look back at verse eight. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That sort of humility to live open lives before the Lord. That's living in the light. He says, uh, chapter two, verse four, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Later he says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. So that is Christianity. Christianity isn't just about what you say. Regardless of what Western society has taught you, despite what you've learned by the hypocrisy that you've seen in people, people just say these things. And I guess it doesn't mean anything for their, for their lives. It doesn't mean anything for, for what, what, how they live in their homes. That's not the standard. The standard is scripture. It's not what you've seen demonstrated. The standard is what Jesus himself demonstrated. And John had this passion, this. But it wasn't just like this um, crotchety old man, like um, going after this uh, rebellious young generation. No, there's a tenderness in John's voice. Think of the 
the terms of endearment he uses here. He says, beloved. Earlier, at the beginning of chapter two, he said, my, my little children. He'll say it again, my little children. Those two terms he used th throughout the book, beloved, my little children. There's this tenderness with faith that these people are called higher. They're called to a level worthy of the gospel, which is that the, the gap between what we claim and how we live would continue to be shortened as we await our king, our, our soon returning king. The gap between what we say and we do, or we say and we claim, and what we actually demonstrate through our lives, that gap would continue to shrink until the day that we finally welcome our king or we, we stand before him in glory. That was John's passion, that was his vision. And so he brings it very, very relevantly directly to our hearts regarding unforgiveness. So I want us to address that this morning and I want the Lord to minister to our hearts. He says, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So when, when it comes to unforgiveness, there's a spiritual principle that what, co what comes along with us harboring unforgiveness is also a spiritual confusion. And so if you have a, a certain um, fog that kind of rests over your mind, if you have a certain lack of real orientation and vision for your life, I would encourage you to put that before the Lord and say, God, is there any unforgiveness in my heart? Because that's attributed to darkness. That's attributed to, to a, a form of rebellion against God, not living openly before the Lord. It's actually a sign of self-righteousness. When we stand in, in hate and anger and we harbor unforgiveness towards our brother, towards our sister, towards our neighbor, it's a form of self-righteousness. It's, it's a form of living outside of the revelation that we have been forgiven much. And so I want, I want to minister, I want to allow the Lord to minister to your heart. I'm gonna ask God to come to the keys because I want to set the, the atmosphere for the Lord to minister to our hearts. I believe the Lord wants to reveal in his tenderness and his gentleness, unforgiveness that we've harbored in our hearts so he can bring healing and he can bring you into the light and allow his truth to reign in your life. So would you all bow your heads and close your eyes? There's so much more in this passage that we're gonna get into, but the first thing I wanted to address is unforgiveness. Because you may say this morning, well, I don't have, I don't have hate towards anybody, or I don't have any unforgiveness. But sometimes I believe that we harbor unforgiveness and hate almost unconsciously, and it allows us to stumble into this confusion. And then in the midst of that confusion, we don't, we, we don't know how we got there. And Holy Spirit in his kindness would draw us back to the cross and reveal to us that agreement that we made with that offense that we took against that person or that hurt that we experienced in a relationship. And by his grace, he would offer us a way out. He would offer us a way to live in the light, walking in forgiveness towards our brother, towards our sister, towards a family member. 
So would you firstly, before you even deal with any unforgiveness, would you just put yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, is there any unforgiveness in my heart that I've been harboring? Is there any anger or hate? I encourage you, I encourage you as the Lord reveals anything in your heart to you in his kindness again. Remember, this is his kindness that leads us to repentance. You don't need to rehash through all the details and the justifications of those things, but rather just very quickly place that before the Lord, place that before the cross. Knowing that you yourself have been forgiven of much, that in fact you are the one who hung Jesus on that cross and it was your sin that hung him there. And you may not have done those same offenses to, to somebody, but, but you've offended many people and, and very specifically you've offended the Lord. Therefore, you can forgive. So place it at the cross. the goodness of the Lord. It's there that you encounter his grace that washes over you. It's there that you experience a fresh revelation of his forgiveness towards you as you extend mercy and grace and forgiveness towards a brother or sister or a spouse or a former friend. Lord, I speak over this house this morning the forgiveness of Calvary that would have real life implications for the offenses that we take on in this world and that in this place, this morning, that there would be an end to this harboring of hate or bitterness or unforgiveness but be cut off because of the work of Calvary because of the embodiment of mercy and grace that you yourself demonstrated to us. I speak that upon every heart, upon every soul. Receive that from the Lord, that grace. This is the grace that Jesus himself demonstrated through his life. You know, the standard has been raised in Jesus. He said, we should bless those who persecute us. Pray for our enemies. And he himself did that very thing. So he wouldn't raise us to a standard that's impossible. It is impossible in our own flesh, but his spirit comes, his grace comes. The personification of his grace, which is the Holy Spirit, comes and empowers us to extend forgiveness and grace to others. So God, wash over our hearts. Wash over our hearts. And as the Lord comes, what 1 John just told us, 
is that we'll no longer be stumbling around in the dark, but we'll be walking in the light. So God, that confusion that has fogged some people's minds in this place, I pray would be lifted because of the forgiveness that flows from Calvary and the forgiveness that we extend towards other people. There has been a fog over some people's minds, maybe, maybe even in the form of depression or oppression or heaviness or just a lethargy and apathy that lifts in your presence, King Jesus. And I speak that over this house this morning. As individuals come into the light of your forgiveness and extend that forgiveness to others, that that fog would lift. There'd be no more stumbling around, purposeless, visionless. There'd be such clarity of vision as they live in the light before you, King Jesus. I speak that upon every individual here this morning in your mighty name. Amen. In this same spirit of the Lord ministering his word, look at verse 12. So John goes kind of into like poet mode here and kind of gets... clever in this like sing-songy way, repetitive way, as a poet would. So he kind of repeats himself, addressing little children, addressing young men, addressing fathers. There's a lot of disagreement among scholars if, if this is supposed to be imagery regarding, um, regarding the audience or if he's literally talking to fathers and young men. My conviction is that there's application for both. Just back in verse one, he had already addressed them all as little children. So there's, there's great reason for us to think that he's addressing all believers. We're all children before the Lord. But he then addresses fathers and young men. There is a real call here to the maturity of the believer. And there's a real call here for the youthful zeal that we're all entitled to as followers of Jesus. So regardless of your age, there is an application I do believe for young men and for fathers, but there's an application for all believers as well here. And so this first one, verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He first addresses because of this new standard demonstrated through the person of Jesus. He addresses them and their freedom that they, they receive through the person of Jesus. And there's nothing like the freedom that we receive through the revelation that we just, ha- we just experienced. You know, in that moment of the Lord ministered his word, there's nothing like the, the revelation of freedom that we have from sin. There's nothing like it. Being free before the Lord, that we have been forgiven by the Lord himself. And that was his, his faith-filled, um, like, a faith-filled prayer over, the, over these believers. I'm writing to you that you would know that your sins are forgiven for the Lord's name's sake, like in alignment with his character, in alignment with the character revealed through the pers- person of Jesus. There's nothing like freedom. So I believe the Lord wants to minister his freedom in this, a revelation of his freedom that we all can have, that we all have through the person of Jesus. Just, just last night, after the men's retreat, I officiated a wedding and um, a, a young lady came up to me and shared her testimony with me. How she encountered the Lord in prison. She had been a woman who really struggled with drug abuse and got herself into all sorts of criminal trouble and found herself in prison all alone. 
and she felt drawn towards the Bible. She felt um, drawn towards Christian books, anything she could get her hands on in regards to Jesus, the person of Jesus, she felt drawn to, and she just began to eat it up. Some people began to make fun of her and um, ridicule her, but she, she began to encounter something real. She began to encounter something that she had never encountered before. And she ended up surrendering her life to Christ. And she said she experienced something that I believe, as she said it, it sounded so contradictory because she said she experienced freedom in prison. Here she was, bound, imprisoned, and yet she experienced freedom for the first time in her life. And you could see it in her eyes. There was a flicker of, of reality in her eye of what she experienced was real. She experienced freedom because, because it was a revelation from God by the Spirit of God of real freedom. And so I want people to experience that this morning. If you need a, a revelation of freedom, I want you to receive from the Lord. Close your eyes in this place and receive from the Lord. Lord, there's a revelation of freedom that some in this house this morning, they need. They need a revelation that they can be as children before you free in your presence. Innocence restored. Innocence restored. I believe there's a weight to those words right there. There have been some that have been so soiled by their own decisions and by this world that a hopelessness and a despair has fallen upon your life. I want to speak over you this morning, freedom that only comes through the cross, freedom that only comes by the hand of Jesus himself. In fact, his nail-pierced hands. Receive freedom from the Lord. Freedom like a child. Only Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Receive that personally from the Lord. As you place your confidence in his sufficiency, what he speaks over you is your sins are forgiven. You're washed as white as snow. Your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. You can experience freedom. Freedom from the Lord, freedom directly from the Lord over your life. There's gonna be a joy that comes upon some in this house this morning because of the freedom that's experienced and realized. That young lady I was talking to, there was a contagious smile upon her face because of what she had experienced. At this point, she had been clean for a number of years, but freedom is real. And it's only possible through the person of Jesus himself. And that has to be received directly from him. And I speak that upon every individual here this morning in your mighty name, amen. Verse 13, look, it says this, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him, him who is from the beginning. And he repeats that again in verse 14. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. There is this reality that comes with maturity in the Lord where things, um, things that come at us in life, disappointments, discouragements, don't 
toss us to and fro as much. That is the essence of maturity. That's why he says, I write to you fathers, because this one of whom I speak, you've known him from the beginning. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so maybe in our younger years of the Lord, it's like we make a commitment to follow Jesus. We have a revelation of his love. And then life happens, disappointment happens, people stab us in the back. Hypocrisy kind of slaps us in the face. Hypocrisy in the church. The breakthrough doesn't come like we thought. The request in prayer doesn't, or the answer in prayer doesn't come immediately. And disappointment swells and all of a sudden we're like, who am I, where am I? Who is God? There is a path forward of maturity in the Lord. It's a revelation of his consistent nature that he is the one who's the same from the beginning to the end. That's why he addresses fathers in that way because you only step into that place of true maturity in the Lord through that path of testing and trusting his faithfulness, of allowing him to reveal his faithfulness to you. And I believe this morning, God wants to take you there, regardless of where you are in your journey. If you're just starting out in your journey, if you're further down the road, God wants to give you a fresh revelation of his faithfulness. So would you receive directly from the Lord? Close your eyes in this place. If you have disappointment, if you have an unanswered prayer that like just eats away at you, if you've been hurt by the church, you've been hurt by Christians or even quote unquote Christians, can I just challenge you to place that before the one who is the standard himself? It's not people, it's the Lord. He's the standard. And so often we lower our standard to just what we've experienced. But the standard has been raised in the person of Jesus. He said the kingdom of God has come near. He personifies in this kingly way everything about God. To God in this place this morning, would you bring a fresh revelation of your faithfulness? a fresh revelation of your faithfulness. That you are the same yesterday. The stories that we've heard, the accounts in scripture that we've read, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are faithfulness. That's who you are. You are the epitome of faithfulness. So God, give us a revelation of that faithfulness this morning from beginning to end. And I pray that would be the ground on which we build our lives, not the fleeting opinions of people, not the analysis of the talking heads. God, our lives would be built on your steady, faithful nature that you are good that you are good the Lord is faithful he is more than enough
half of verse 13. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And that's what he repeats down below as well in verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, because the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. It's a revelation of the victory that we have in the Lord. And what I want to encourage you to see here in 1 John is how personal it is. He describes the enemy as the evil one. It's personal. And the battles that we face in this life are so personal. It's the, the enemy coming at us and poking at us and finding out, finding out what what really turns our crank, what, what really gets under our skin. That is the nature of the enemy. And John calls that out. And he says, you have overcome the evil one. That personal attacking nature of the enemy, you've overcome. Why is that? It's because we have victory in Jesus. I think what frustrates us is what he alludes to up top in verse eight. He says, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He re he's referring to the cosmic battle that infuriates us, right? I mean, we, we, we live in this kingdom that is here but not yet. We live in this kingdom of fine, the finality of the work of Christ, but yet in God's sovereign wisdom and I believe his love for humanity has allowed the prince of the power of the air a certain authority on the earth which is so frustrating and it's, it's sometimes confusing to us. But the promise here that John speaks over them in their youthfulness, in their like young, faith-filled zeal is the victory that they have through Christ. You have overcome the evil one. So although we're in a battle of here but not yet, we, we are equipped with the promises and the victory in Christ, but yet we're called to then uh, apply those in the battle right now, in the here and now. He speaks of it as though it's past tense. You have overcome the evil, because there's nothing that's gonna be added to the work of Christ. I'll tell you that. There's nothing that's gonna be added to the, the finished work of Christ over your life. So I wanna minister that to your heart before we close. Would you all stand in this place? This one last application that I believe the Lord wants to apply to our hearts. It's the victory of King Jesus. Would you receive from the Lord? Lord, give us a revelation of the overcoming inheritance that you've given your people. We are overcomers because of the great overcomer himself, Jesus. It's you, Lord. You have, you're leading us in this victorious procession, this triumphant procession. And for that, we say, praise God. We stop, we stop the excuse making. We stop the feeling bad for ourselves, having a pity party for the battles that we, that we have to fight. Rather, we fix our eyes on our victorious savior. We say what a privilege it is to be called into this battle because we know the end result. We know the end result is victory and that's where we live. That's where we live now. I speak that upon every individual here this morning. Would you receive from the Lord? There are some this morning who feel so beat up. 
they, they just feel exhausted from the battle. Whether it be addictions or just disappointment, just even a weariness or the, maybe just the amount of small battles and pressures upon your life. There's a grace here this morning for victory, a revelation of victory. The Lord is saying this morning, you have overcome the evil one. It's because the king of glory that resides in you. You have overcome the evil one. That is now your destiny. That is now your inheritance. You have overcome the evil one. Would you believe that this morning? Would you receive from the Lord? You have overcome the evil one. He does not have the final word. Surrender this performance Christianity to the Lord. That is not God's lot for your life. His lot, his, his call upon your life is for your eyes to be fixed on him. And your victory to be in him not in your performance. I speak that upon every individual this morning. Victory, victory, victory. This week, Lord, victory over the enemy in your precious, precious name. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.